In December of 1945, five planes on a routine training mission exercise never made it back to their Fort Lauderdale naval base. Three rescue planes were sent to look for them. Only two came back. This is the Bermuda Triangle, a patch of ocean between Florida, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. If you enjoy these episodes, you should check out the Unexplained Mysteries podcast. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Follow Unexplained Mysteries free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Master Navy diver Dean Hawes had thought he'd seen it all until one cloudy afternoon in 1968. He was on a dive off the northeast coast of Cape Charles, Virginia, when Haas spotted something. It looked like a ship. It was massive, running the length of a football field. The wreck seemed to stretch forever, cemented to the sandy floor by long steel shards. When Haas surfaced, he told his dive team what he'd found. He needed to get his team down to the wreck as soon as possible. But a storm was rolling in. They'd have to come back. Meanwhile, Hawes did some research. He found a striking image of a naval ship in an old grainy black and white photo. Its structure was an exact match for the shipwreck. Hawes found a possible name for his ship, the USS Cyclops. He shuddered, realizing what he'd found. The Cyclops was one of the most famous missing ships in history. It had vanished in a sudden storm during World War I, one of many cursed vessels to sink in the Bermuda Triangle. Hawes wanted to get back to the wreck as soon as possible, but the Navy overrode him. It was years before Hawes could return with a dive team. But even though he'd marked the exact spot where he'd spotted the wreck, the Cyclops had once again disappeared, lost without a trace. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This is part two of our investigation into the Bermuda Triangle, also known as the Devil's Triangle. Last week, we looked at some of the most famous mysterious disappearances of ships and planes within the borders of the Triangle. We learned about how difficult it is to navigate the triangle, especially given how it makes compasses go haywire. We explored two possible alien encounters. In 1492, Columbus's ship, the Santa Maria, had a run-in with a mysterious glowing orange sphere. 
So did the American warship, the USS John F. Kennedy, in 1971, almost 500 years later. This week, we'll be taking a closer look at whether there's a rational explanation for all these disappearances and mysteries, and why so many objects simply seem to vanish while traveling through the Triangle's deadly stretches of ocean. And finally, we'll try to figure out the real cause of these mysterious, almost supernatural, vanishing acts. Larry Koosh was puzzled. It was 1974. Koosh was working as a librarian in the reference department of the Hayden Library at Arizona State University, where he assisted people with a variety of needs, researching obscure tidbits for a college paper, helping patrons with the microfiche machine, directing them to the proper archives for ancient newspapers. Koosh liked his job, and he was good at it. Normally, Koosh handled a wide variety of topics. Until recently, visitors had been asking a lot about the Constitution. It was spring, and Nixon and the Watergate crisis were on everyone's mind. But suddenly, many library visitors were asking about something different. Do you have anything on the Bermuda Triangle, one patron would ask? Is it true that ships just disappear into thin air? Does the Devil's Triangle eat planes? Are aliens kidnapping people in the Bermuda Triangle? It wasn't hard to figure out what was driving the craze. Charles Berlitz's nonfiction book, The Bermuda Triangle, published early in 1974, was fueling the wild speculation about the triangle. Berlitz suggested many unusual theories for the events. His preferred go-to explanation was electromagnetic oddity. Kush wanted to know more. He took out ads in several library journals, asking if anyone had more information on the Bermuda Triangle. He received lots of mail from fellow enthusiasts, but much of it was unverifiable myth and legend. He needed hard facts. So Larry Kush did what very few Bermuda Triangle writers had done. Rather than settle for other people's tales, he tracked down original documents, ship manifests and boatyard records. He even got the Board of Investigation report from the U.S. Navy about Flight 19 and original investigation reports from the Civil Aeronautics Board about other key plane crashes. The documents were not confidential, and the agencies were happy to share them. Like the reporter I.F. Stone and the baseball statistician Bill James, he needed to see the original documents and records of occurrences. Kush knew history could sometimes become a giant game of telephone. You couldn't necessarily assume a retelling of an event was accurate. Your best hope for finding the truth was to get the exact records. Let's return to the tale of the Ellen Austin and the Rosalie in the 1800s. As the story goes, the Ellen Austin had sailed from Great Britain to Cuba and discovered the Rosalie floating abandoned near the Bahamas. In the 20th century, chroniclers began saying that this incident occurred in 1841, according to a London Times article that documented the event. But there's a problem with that theory. The Ellen Austin hadn't been built yet. It didn't make its maiden voyage until 1854. As he researched the event, Larry Cush stumbled upon newspaper articles that cleared up the mysterious encounter. In actuality, there were two different stories of abandoned ships having been discovered, once in 1841 
and once in 1880. The original 1941 article states that a ship left unnamed was found abandoned near the Bahamas, but further research shows that this ship in question was most likely the Rossini. Then in 1880, the Ellen Austin quite possibly found a different abandoned ship while making their way to Cuba. But these were two separate events. The Rosalie had not passed through a 40-year wormhole. The similarity between the names of the two ships, the Rossini and the Rosalie, probably confused conspiracy theorists who were later looking for more proof of the Bermuda Triangle's malice. Then, once one Bermuda Triangle writer had combined the two events, others followed suit. It was the first instance of sloppiness that Kush came across, but it wouldn't be the last. From the beginning, the historical records around triangle events were a problem. In many cases, there was very little supporting evidence for so-called disappearances. Often, accounts were completely contradictory. So Kush started pulling on more threads, digging around in old naval records. And it was here that he discovered the story of a completely different ship, the Rossini. The crew of the Rossini had abandoned ship when they struck a reef in 1840 in the old Bahama Channel. The Rossini had been found drifting along in open ocean when it was discovered by two other ships, the Sunflower and the Resolute. The crew was nowhere to be found. Except that after the abandoned ship was discovered, sailors on another trading vessel discovered the entire crew of the Rossini on dry land, safely drinking away their paychecks in Cuba. Kush had a nagging suspicion as to what had happened. A sailor, sensing a great story, had sent the news about finding the Rossini to the London Times. But when the crew of the Rossini was found, the news either never made the Times or was printed in a much smaller article that largely went unnoticed. Another boat, the Rosalie, was built in 1838 and went missing in 1840. But Kush poked around and made a discovery. The status of the Rosalie as missing hadn't been added until 1940. There was no indication that the Rosalie actually went missing in 1840. Any number of things could have happened. The Rosalie could have been renamed. It was common for ships to be renamed. It could have been deliberately sunk. It could have sunk sometime well after 1840, while going by a different name. It could have been safely retired in the late 1800s, dismantled and sold for scraps, and the British Maritime Museum could have lost the records between the 1800s and 1940. The only ship that was confirmed abandoned with no crew in August of 1840 in the Bahamas area was the Rossini. Kush acknowledged that the discovery of the Rossini and the very similarly named Rosalie might not have been a smoking gun, but you could smell the powder burns. Next, Kush zeroed in on the Ellen Austin's discovery of a different missing ship. He followed the trail of articles back to a 1944 book called The Stargazer Talks by Rupert Gould. Gould wrote a very brief article about the Ellen Austin discovering a missing ship in 1881. Gould didn't list a source, but that didn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. So Cush continued his research. And arrived at Lloyd's of London, the British bank and insurer. Lloyd's had to keep track of British ships that sunk. 
It was the largest insurance company in England, and it was responsible for paying out damages to shipment companies in many different nautical scenarios. But Lloyd's of London had no record for any scuttled ship in 1881, and Koosh could find no further source for the Ellen Austin's encounter. What he did find went a long way to explaining what happened. The account that Rupert Gould wrote in 1944 was brief and matter-of-fact about the Ellen Austin encountering an abandoned ship. But when Charles Berlitz wrote about the Ellen Austin in 1974 in his best-selling book, The Bermuda Triangle, there were details in his retelling that Gould hadn't mentioned. Berlitz said the rigging was intact. He said the Ellen Austin lost the abandoned ship in a storm instead of fog, as was initially chronicled. Berlitz was adding details he couldn't possibly have known. Little details, but they added up. James Chaplin, author of the pulp bestseller Encounters in the Devil's Triangle, would add even more fiction. Chaplin was not as scrupulous as either journalist Rupert Gould or Charles Berlitz, who launched the Bermuda Triangle craze. Chaplin wrote about how carefully the sails had been furled. Chaplin also claimed that the captain of the Ellen Austin had smashed a cockroach with his shoe and carried a Colt revolver, things he couldn't possibly have known almost 100 years later. And Chaplin and Berlitz claimed that crew members of the Ellen Austin had gone aboard the derelict ship. And then vanished in the fog, never to be seen again. But that turned out, in all likelihood, not to have happened. Initially, this was a minor report of a possible sighting of an abandoned ship. But by 1974, the story had been blown into a crazy ghost story. Sometimes reality just isn't as interesting as fiction. The USS Cyclops certainly had an interesting true story. The World War I ship was captained by the intense German-born George Worley. Worley was disciplined and harsh with his men, but also walked around on board in his pajamas. In March of 1918, while World War I shuttered on, the Cyclops steamed its way to Brazil to help refuel British ships and pick up 10,000 tons of manganese that the U.S. needed to make ammunition. Before heading back, one of the crew members noticed that one of the engines wasn't working. The broken engine wasn't enough to stop or slow down the ship, but it made it much harder for it to maneuver. We come to March 9th and 10th, when the Cyclops would have been traveling back. Given the speed ships could reach in 1918, it would likely have been somewhere in between Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, and Cape Charles, Virginia. As with several other cases, Koosh found out from meteorological records that there was a heavy storm on March 9th and 10th, 1918, that struck the east coast of the U.S. and the Atlantic Ocean. The Cyclops was chugging along, but the storm swirled up with a ferocity no one had seen before. The Cyclops began to tilt in the water. 20 degrees, 30 degrees, 45 degrees. Hardened Navy soldiers screamed. We'll hear what happened to the USS Cyclops when we return. Now back to the story. In March of 1918, the USS Cyclops set out on its final journey from Rio de Janeiro to Baltimore. It ran into a potentially deadly storm. 
researcher and librarian Larry Koosh was looking into the conditions that may have capsized the Cyclops. One thing he knew for certain was that with a storm of that size, there would have been heavy wind. If the 10,000 tons of manganese in the cargo hold shifted in any way when the winds hit, the Cyclops could have become imbalanced and then rolled over completely. No SOS signal was sent out, but that could be explained by how quickly the storm hit. There wouldn't have been time. But that still leaves the question of where all the wreckage of the Cyclops went. It was a large ship. Kush didn't have an answer for that. It'd be at least two more decades before a clear answer emerged. But in the meantime, there were far more inexplicable disappearances of ships and planes than just the Cyclops and the Rossini. That sheer number of disasters has to mean something. But Larry Kush was discovering a familiar pattern regarding the Bermuda Triangle. Many incidents that paranormal experts claimed to belong to the Triangle had actually taken place outside its boundaries, in a couple of cases, thousands of miles away. One incident cited in Charles Berlitz's book, The Disappearance of an Ore-Carrying Ship, turned out to have happened in the Pacific Ocean. So, on the other side of the world from the Bermuda Triangle. Exactly. As Kush uncovered these kinds of mix-ups, it significantly reduced the number of disasters within the Triangle. Furthermore, some incidents were described as having taken place on calm seas or bright sunny days, but the records showed that there had been major storms on the day in question, making crashes and wrecks far more plausible, and the people reporting on these events a lot less reliable. But don't forget about more recent Bermuda Triangle events where we know boats and planes clearly disappeared. Disappear is a very strong word. All the boats and planes in question clearly sunk or crashed, and we'll find out why so little wreckage has been found. But to continue to play devil's triangle advocate, what about Donald Crowhurst? Donald Crowhurst was the British inventor who entered the 1968-69 race to sail around the world using his own navigation system. Until the triangle tragically and mysteriously claimed his life. Not exactly. Donald Crowhurst's end was tragic, but not particularly mysterious. Because this was 1969, technology was still limited, so everyone back in England was relying on the ships themselves to broadcast their locations. The honor system, if you will. But Crowhurst was falling behind the other competitors, so he started sending back fake location reports to England, implying he was much further along. But because of those, everyone following the race thought he was in contention for the lead. By June of 1969, Crowhurst was struggling with loneliness. He'd also been keeping a fake logbook, suggesting he had gone around Cape Horn at the southern tip of Chile, when he was in fact still on the east coast of South and Central America. On July 1st, Donald Crowhurst wrote out a long, rambling confession of having faked part of his journey. The last words he wrote were, quote, It is finished. It is finished. It is the mercy. End quote. On July 9th, 
the crew of a British royal mail ship, a steamship used to transport British letters and packages, discovered Crowhurst's boat, the Tynmouth Electron, floating abandoned in the Atlantic. It's believed, based on his journals, that Crowhurst was likely overcome by despair and committed suicide by jumping off his boat into the ocean in July of 1969. It is also possible he accidentally drowned. Crowhurst left behind the journal, his fake logbook, and his real logbook, so it's strange that the incident made it into Charles Berlitz's book as a mystery at all. Larry Kouche took everything he'd accumulated and, in 1975, he released his own analysis, The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved. Kouche's book came out and made... You're going to say waves, aren't you? Noise. Some noise. His debunking caught people's attention. It all made logical sense. It wasn't aliens or missing time or Atlantis or anything paranormal. Just a series of perfectly understandable incidents surrounded by sudden bad weather and a lot of exaggeration. And it generated hot debate among paranormal scholars. They acknowledged some minor errors in their own work, but were quick to note that Kush had not fully explained Flight 19, the set of five planes from the Naval Training Base in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, that disappeared in December 1945, never to be seen again. Larry Kush knew he couldn't satisfy his critics or his own curiosity without going far more in-depth on Flight 19. On the website of the National Organization, the Center for Skeptical Inquiry, Larry Kush explains that he was uniquely well-suited to this task. In addition to being a research librarian, he was also a professional pilot and flight instructor with over 4,000 hours of flying experience logged. Kush knew from terrifying personal experience that human error could play a major role in disastrous plane crashes, and he was curious about why this didn't seem to be mentioned anywhere in the Triangle literature. He'd had two friends die when they'd both crashed their small planes onto a dirt runway he himself had used. He'd also had his own narrow escape. Kush states that in 1964, while flying a tiny Piper Comanche plane in northern Arizona, he was 17,000 feet above sea level over a mountain range. As black thunderclouds rolled in below him, he realized he'd have to outrun them or the storm could cause him to crash in the mountains. Kush got a lucky break when the clouds briefly parted. He dove between the clouds, managing to land on an abandoned airstrip on a hill. Memories of this experience rushed back to him a decade later as he started his research in 1974. What if Lieutenant Charles Taylor had simply been a victim of bad weather and bad luck, as Larry Kush himself nearly was? The rational part of Kush's brain assured him he'd be fine. But the track record of planes in the Bermuda Triangle certainly suggested something menacing at work. And if your plane crashed, it didn't really matter why. To know for certain what had happened to Flight 19, Larry Kush would have to do something risky. He'd have to retrace Taylor's route from December 5, 1945, in the air. Even though he was safely in Arizona, thousands of miles away, Larry Kush was choosing to voluntarily enter the Bermuda Triangle. And he wasn't just going to fly in the Triangle. 
he was going to follow the exact same route that had swallowed up Flight 19 33 years earlier. If Larry Kush wasn't careful, his thirst for knowledge could make him the Triangle's next victim. But before Larry Kush flew the same route that the doomed Flight 19 had flown in the Bermuda Triangle, he needed to do some research. Larry Kush wanted to talk to Flight 19 pilot Charles Taylor's closest living relatives. Taylor's sister and brother-in-law lived in Corpus Christi, Texas. They were happy to talk about the heroic pilot they'd known. Kush also interviewed Taylor's naval friends. A portrait emerged. Larry Kush found that Taylor had been a good pilot, conscientious, responsible, careful. But also, prior to coming to Fort Lauderdale, Taylor had been based in Miami and had flown out of there a lot. The skeptic tucked this information about Miami away for later. If a pilot was really used to flying out from one location, leaving from a different one could significantly disrupt his routine. And on April 5th, 1978, Larry Kush arrived in Fort Lauderdale and rented a small Cessna plane. In the name of science, he was going to fly the very route Charles Taylor had flown before he disappeared in the Triangle in 1945. Would the Triangle claim its most celebrated skeptic as one of its most prized victims? Here's how a paranormal expert would describe the fateful day of April 5th, 1978. Quote, the day was calm, too calm. The sunlight gleamed with an ominous menace and the sea was hungry, end quote. But Larry Kush would have said, quote, the day was sunny and mild with manageable winds, end quote. Larry Kush rented a small Cessna plane in Fort Lauderdale and took off. He was a logical man. He did not believe there were supernatural forces at work around the triangle just exaggeration, possible human error, and bad luck. But that didn't mean he didn't feel a twinge of apprehension as his small Cessna rose higher into the clouds. The first leg of the recreation flight passed without incident. Kush piloted his plane due east to the island of Walker's Key in the Bahamas. He refueled. So far, nothing had gone wrong. Larry Kush then took off again, flying to Key West, the tip of the Florida Keys. But as he approached the Keys, he noticed something everyone had missed. From above, the islands he saw in the Keys looked identical to a stretch of islands in the northern Bahamas where Flight 19 had been. Someone flying over one set could easily think they were flying above the other. It was a new piece of the puzzle. You might say a key piece of the puzzle. But Larry Kush wasn't out of the woods yet. He still had to fly back to Fort Lauderdale to complete his journey. And while he was confident that there were no supernatural forces threatening him, he knew that bad weather could spring up at any moment and that even a single error while in the air could prove fatal. We'll learn what Kush made of his fascinating discovery in a moment. Now, back to the story. In 1978, Larry Kush was mid-flight, retracing the route used by Flight 19 when it mysteriously disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. On this clear, sunny day, he had flown two-thirds of the trip without incident. 
And so, he began to fly the third and final leg of flight, checking his instruments, following his compass, seeing if anything unusual or irregular would happen. To everyone's relief, he made it back to Fort Lauderdale safely and without incident. But the Florida Keys' close resemblance to the Bahamas stuck with him. He returned to the logs of Charles Taylor's flight and all subsequent communications. And Larry Kush noticed something. After Flight 19 got lost, Charles Taylor had identified himself as MT-28, meaning a torpedo bomber flying out of Miami. His proper ID was FT-28, a torpedo bomber flying out of Fort Lauderdale. Charles Taylor had flown a lot of flights out of Miami during the war, patrolling for German U-boats. And he had only been assigned to Fort Lauderdale on November 20, 1945, just 16 days before Flight 19's journey. Miami naval training flights flew towards the Florida Keys, not the Bahamas. Charles Taylor had radioed during the flight that his compasses were malfunctioning. So Taylor would have been unable to use the traditional dead reckoning method of navigation. Navigating by dead reckoning does not use landmarks. The pilot uses the compass heading, length of time, and speed. When Larry Kush interviewed Taylor's surviving fellow comrades at the Fort Lauderdale Naval Base, none of them could remember Taylor having flown the Fort Lauderdale training route before. When he looked at Flight 19, he found that Taylor was given instructions to head west. If Taylor and his crew were above the Bahamas, flying west would have brought them safely back to the United States. But if you're flying over the Florida Keys, heading west would make no sense. That would take you above the vast Gulf of Mexico. It is not hard to imagine that Charles Taylor became disoriented and thought he was in the Florida Keys instead of the Bahamas. Larry Kush had thousands of hours of experience as a pilot. He speaks from experience when he writes, quote, One of the stark truths of flying and hiking is that the longer a person stays lost, the more confused and the more lost he becomes, end quote. After the bombing runs, it would have been approximately 4 p.m. As it grew darker, a storm rolled in and the naval personnel at Fort Lauderdale had no idea where Flight 19 was. At 5.20 p.m., the sun set. At 5.50 p.m., the naval base finally had an estimated location for the planes of Flight 19. They were between 200 and 400 miles north of the Bahamas and 60 to 260 miles northeast of Cape Canaveral. That was an enormous area to search. By then, Flight 19 would have had to deal with storm clouds, a lack of light, low fuel, turbulence, and wind. If they'd known to turn west, there was still a chance they could have survived. But Larry Kush confirmed that by that point, the planes were too far away for radio contact. The atmospheric changes from day to night made it very difficult for radio signals to travel. And so, sometime after 6.20 p.m., Flight 19 crashed into the ocean and the planes sank. Tragic, but not mysterious. But what about the Martin Mariner search plane sent to rescue Flight 19 that exploded shortly after takeoff? Also not mysterious. A Mariner plane carries almost 2,000 pounds of jet fuel. 
Kush encountered an officer who had seen a Mariner explode in midair. A stray spark almost certainly connected with fumes, and the Mariner exploded. Larry Kush had dug up enough information to warrant a full second book. And while he'd made headway with his 1975 work, The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved, an unexpected pop culture phenomenon had people imagining the Bermuda Triangle had a paranormal explanation. Specifically, aliens. Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind made an excitable public much slower to accept that the triangle was nothing more than fantasy. Kush knew he'd have his work cut out for him, so he redoubled his efforts to fully explain Flight 19. For triangle conspirators, Flight 19 was often described as the most crucial event in proving their theories correct. Larry Kush hoped that if he presented a rational explanation for its disappearance, he could convince members of the general public that there was no Bermuda Triangle mystery. And so, in 1980, he compiled everything he'd learned, his own recreation of the flight, the interviews with Charles Taylor's fellow pilots and family, details from personal notes, and he released his book, Flight 19. The book received strong reviews. It was now seen as the definitive record of Flight 19 and its aftermath, and its success boosted sales of Kush's earlier book, The Bermuda Triangle Mystery, Solved. Both books are still in print, and in 2015, Larry Kush wrote a 40th anniversary article re-examining the triangle that can be found online. He returned to his life as a librarian and was invited to join the CSI, or Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, an organization devoted to scientific inquiry and critical thinking. Founding members included Cosmos star scientist Carl Sagan and sci-fi writer Isaac Asimov. He joined immediately. So Larry Kush has explained a lot of events that were previously presented as inexplicable. But what happened to the evidence, specifically the wreckage of all these planes and ships? With Flight 19, remember that the diameter of the search area was over 200 miles wide, and that was an estimate. It's not hard to imagine that the planes crashed in an area where they just couldn't be found. But this happens to every one of our Bermuda Triangle mysteries. So many of them come with words like vanished, could not be found, disappeared into thin air. The culprit is anything but mysterious. The Gulf Stream is an extremely strong current in the Atlantic Ocean that runs right along the edge of the Bermuda Triangle. National Geographic describes the Gulf Stream as essentially, quote, a 40 to 50 mile wide river within the ocean, end quote. Dave Fight of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration notes, quote, if you have the right atmospheric conditions, you could get unexpectedly high waves, end quote. Storms can come up suddenly out of nowhere. And when a plane crashes or ships sink, the powerful Gulf Stream currents carry the wreckage far beyond where searches would expect. Beyond that, the ocean within the area of the Bermuda Triangle reaches as deep as 19,000 feet. So we're dealing with an ocean floor that's almost four miles below sea level. And within the boundaries of the triangle lies the Puerto Rico Trench, which goes as low as 27,500 feet below sea level. At those depths, it's pretty easy for the ocean to swallow up ships. 
this legend looks less menacing all the time. Make no mistake, it's not easy to travel through the triangle. Beyond the rogue waves, you've got to deal with storms and what are called microburst hurricanes that come out of nowhere. But what about the compasses? We've heard about compasses malfunctioning, spinning wildly, unusable. There are actually a few reasons for this. For starters, it's not uncommon for compasses to swing back and forth as much as 30 degrees. Another is that while compasses are generally reliable, they can malfunction. If live wires or steel are close to a compass, they can interfere with its needle. And compasses are designed to spin quickly. If a boat or plane is changing direction, the compass has to keep up. But we haven't talked at all about the two encounters with mysterious flying objects. Columbus and his men's encounter in 1492 with the giant floating orange ball and the USS Kennedy running into something similar in 1971, almost 500 years apart. Bear in mind that our records for Columbus's navigation are sketchy. We do have his journal, but it's been translated and edited through the ages. For all we know, Columbus could have been describing an unusually long sunset. It's harder to ignore the convincing account from one of the communications operators on board the USS Kennedy. The operator described an orange ball floating in the sky amid some communications difficulty. But here's a scientific theory about the orange ball. One of the naturally occurring phenomenon on the ocean floor is a methane hydrate. A methane hydrate deposit is methane gas that's been trapped under the ocean floor in naturally frozen crystallized water. They have massive potential energy. When methane gas erupts to the surface, it froths massively and generates expulsions that, under the right circumstance, could appear to be orange. Additionally, time slows down when you're under stress. To the operator, the eruption likely seemed as though it was hanging in the sky. The truth is, as humans, we make sense of tragedies by constructing narratives around them. It helps us make sense of the world. The reality of the Bermuda Triangle is that the disasters that have occurred there are largely the result of bad luck or human error. Although that isn't nearly as satisfying as a supernatural explanation. That high number of incidents in the Bermuda Triangle is due to the fact that it's an extremely high-trafficked area with a lot of bad weather. The only part of this theory that is true is the fact that it is indeed a triangle. But you could select a random section of high-trafficked ocean anywhere, draw a shape, and construct a story about how ships fall prey to the curse of the Portuguese parallelogram, or the Honduras hexagon, or the Romanian rhombus. Which would be particularly strange, since Romania is landlocked. Hmm. In the wake of having debunked all these mysteries, I think it's safe to consider the Bermuda Triangle explained, unraveled, or, as Larry Kush once wrote, just plain solved. If you're looking for more unexplained mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Greg Macklin and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 